the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushdooney. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Chalcedon Report number 39, November 1968. Foundations are one of the most important, abused, and misunderstood aspects of our contemporary scene. Most large foundations are strongly oriented to statism, and virtually all the rest are too afraid of losing their tax exemption to do more than drift with the current. But foundations have a central and basic place in Christian history. To understand them, let us examine briefly the ancient pagan state. The pagan state was a totalitarian divine human order. The state was a god walking on earth. Its divinity might be manifested in the person of the ruler, or his office, or the state, or people as a whole, but this divinity was believed to be there. There was no freedom from the state. Everything was absolutely under state control, whether in China, India, Babylon, Egypt, Greece, or Rome. Religion was merely a department of state. The one exception was the commonwealth of God's people, Israel. God and His law order were accorded sovereignty over all things by all true believers. God's prophets could rebuke kings because even apostate men were aware of the sovereign word and its power. The tyrant Ahab had to be nagged by his foreign wife, Jezebel, to act against the prophets. The church in the Roman Empire could have readily become a recognized and legal religion by offering incense to Caesar and acknowledging his sovereignty. This the church refused to do. The Christians as citizens were ready to submit to Caesar in all matters of civil justice, but in those areas where God gave the state no jurisdiction, they obeyed God. The biblical faith is not in the state as an overarching, all-governing institution, which takes all others under its wings, but in God's sovereign and overarching law order under which church, state, school, family, vocation, and all things else exist as separate yet interdependent spheres of life. The state has no more legitimate right to govern the church and school than it has to govern the laws of mathematics and physics, and the realm of the church is similarly restricted. The realm of the state is justice and order under God, The realm of the church is the ministry of the word and the sacraments and the discipline of its body. 
The realm of the school is the development of learning and knowledge under God, and so on. The triumph of Christianity meant the death of totalitarianism, and as a result, the state at first tried ruthlessly to exterminate all Christians. For a time, the swords and axes of executioners worked from morning to dark to kill the lines of condemned Christians. Later, when extermination failed, infiltration and subversion became the strategy. But Christianity began to create a new society, a decentralized and free society, and foundations very, very early were basic to that society. These foundations were free and independent agencies, free of church and state, dedicated to specific purposes, charity and welfare, hospitals and medicine, education, orphanages, missions, and so on. These foundations began to accumulate wealth to fulfill these purposes. The history books tell us that by the end of the so-called, quote, Middle Ages, unquote, much of the wealth of Europe was in the hands of the church. They lie. There was considerable wealth in the hands of foundations, Christian orders and foundations, who were doing a great work for rich and poor alike. A greedy church and greedy states were trying to seize and often succeeding in taking over these foundations for their own and Christian purposes. In this imperialism by both church and state, the state finally won. But let us examine those foundations again. The church very early expressed its disapproval of the Neoplatonic pagan flight of the hermits from the world. In fact, in 819, the Council of Aix made it plain that the Christian duty of monastery communities or foundations was to care for the poor or in one way or another, minister to Christian society. Some of these foundations were monastic and clerical. Others were lay foundations. All were responsible for great progress. To cite one group established by rich merchants with their poor tithes and other gifts, the Order of St. John of Jerusalem, also known as the Knights of Malta, was by the end of the 11th century famous for its hospital work. We have an excellent description of one of their hospitals built in Valletta, Malta in 1575 for 800 patients in a recent study of hospitals in their history. The equipment and service in the Malta hospital were the finest of their day. Quote, in regard to the dignity of the infirmary, unquote, the patients' meals were served on silver plates and in covered bowls. Pewter dishes were allotted to the slaves in attendance. The 370 beds were curtained and fresh white linen curtains were used during the summer. All beds and bedding used by consumptives were burned and sheets were ordered changed several times daily if necessary. The hospital was fortunate in having vast endowments which permitted this comfortable equipment. The medical staff included a physician who gave students daily lectures in anatomy. Two practitioners supervised the carrying out of the surgeon's orders, and about a dozen other men were assigned various medical duties. The wards were separated. One was for the aged pilgrims or religious, a small ward for the dying, one for the hemorrhage cases, and a separate ward for the insane and their warden. 
As for food, herbs, all sorts of meats, pigeons, fowls, beef, veal, game, fresh eggs, almonds, raisins, sweet biscuits, apples, pomegranates with sugar, quote, according to the wants of each, unquote, made up a partial list of the hospital's elaborate selection of foods for the patients. Mary Risley, House of Healing, The Story of the Hospital, page 107, Garden City, New York, Doubleday and Company, 1961. The Knights of Malta are still active, and it is possible that their greatest work is ahead of them. This brief citation does serve to illustrate the fact that hospitals were once almost entirely a domain of foundation work, serving all people in Christian charity and with real ability. In the modern age, the hospital has become, quote, independent, unquote, of Christian foundations. It has not been successful as an economic unit, that is, it has trouble breaking even financially, and it has provided the state an excuse for stepping in with socialized medicine. The point is clear. Certain social functions must be provided. Hospitals, schools, welfare agencies, and so on. When Christian foundations establish and control them, they serve the purposes of Christian concern and love. It is not enough to, quote, vote the rascals out, unquote, although this surely needs doing. What will be done about the basic social functions, health, education, and welfare? When the state handles these, it ladles out benefits with politics in mind, and the results are social decay and anarchy. When Christian foundations assume the responsibility, the results further godly law and order. Before Horace Mann began the state school movement in the United States in the 1830s, all children were educated by the Christian schools of the day, which were independent and self-governing. The slum children of newly arrived immigrants and others as well were educated by educational missionary societies or foundations and the work they did was excellent. One such still existing school was recently the target of Supreme Court interference and forced integration, in violation of the Founder's wishes. Whether the Founder wished integration or segregation was none of the Court's business. As late as 1907, all welfare needs in the Depression of that year were met by Christian churches and foundations. The Foundation was once an independent agency whose inception, purpose, and reason for being was to manifest Christian faith and concern for all manners of men and needs. They were a basic aspect of Christian society and important and central to the cause of freedom. The plan to remove tax exemption from churches and Christian agencies in an attempt to destroy Christian civilization. The lingering echoes of the old liberty remain in the confused statements of university students and professors. When the University of California professors and students protest any control by the state, we can agree with them, provided they renounce any and all support by the state and the federal government. Any other course is irresponsibility and immorality. They are seeking the best of both worlds, Christian and statist and the responsibilities of neither. As such, they are a force for anarchy, not freedom. 
for liberty's death knell is always sounded by irresponsibility and license. The forces of Christian Reconstruction are already in evidence, most notably in the Christian school movement. Today, 25 to 30 percent of all grade school children are not in the public schools, and 10 percent of all high school children are in non-status schools. And this is merely the beginning. As many of you already know, our purpose as a small group of Christian scholars and Christian men and women dedicated to Christian Reconstruction is to establish a center of study and learning for this cause. A new order of foundations is central to this purpose as well as a center of biblical learning dedicated to total Christian Reconstruction. Calcedon Report Number 40, December 1968 In order to understand the direction of history, it is necessary to understand the meaning of the city. The city has a long and strange history and has at various times been regarded as man's ideal society and at other times as a thing to flee from. The countryside similarly has been viewed sometimes as a wilderness and at other times a refuge an idyllic haven from the city. The reasons for this are important for us to know. Too many people in modern times have seen the origin of the city in Cain, who built the city and called it Enoch. Genesis 4.17 The Hebrew word for city probably means in origin, quote, to rouse, unquote, or, quote, to raise an alarm, unquote. According to H.C. Leopold, an Enoch means, quote, beginner, unquote. The city of Cain was thus both a new beginning and a place of refuge when an alarm was raised. But Cain's, quote, beginning, unquote, had reference to an earlier beginning, Eden. We are accustomed to thinking of the Garden of Eden exclusively as a, quote, garden, unquote. But Revelation 21 and 22 make it clear that Eden is both garden and city. Quote, the New Jerusalem, unquote, the kingdom or city of God. The common characteristic of ancient cities was a wall. Eden was walled after the fall to keep sinful man out, the wall being, quote, cherubims and flaming sword, unquote. Genesis 3.24 in terms of this, we must say that the city is intended to represent community and a common life and refuge. The two basic aspects thus of the city are, one, a common faith, and two, a common defense. But today, the city has no common faith, and it is a place of increasing lawlessness and terror. Somehow, the city has failed. The city has failed to be a city. Instead of walling out the enemy... It has walled in the enemy. It is important for us to know why. Let us analyze briefly the two basic aspects of the city and its origin. First, a common faith. Originally, a city represented a common faith and citizenship rested on atonement. In ancient Rome, for example, a man lost his citizenship, except for soldiers on duty, if he were absent from the annual lustrations the annual rites of atonement. Citizenship meant adherence to a common religious faith and a common doctrine of law. 
To be a citizen once meant something more than a vote. It meant a covenant of faith. Citizenship was a religious fact. Second, the common defense aspect of a city meant the defense of the citizenry from enemy attack. That enemy was not only a foreign invader, but also lawbreakers and unbelievers within. The law order of the city could be overthrown by unbelief because every law order represents a religious faith. The criminal and the unbeliever are thus equally subverters of a law order, although for different reasons. The city therefore walled itself with stone walls against foreign invaders and by temple ritual and law against the enemy within. In ancient Israel, the true concept of the city was clearly maintained, not only in that a common faith, the covenant God, and a common defense, the covenant law and national defense, were maintained, but that a common justice was accorded to non-citizens. Quote, You shall have one manner of law as well for the stranger as for one of your own country. For I am the Lord your God, unquote. Leviticus 24.22 The stranger or alien could not become a citizen unless he became a member of the covenant, citizenship being religious, not racial. But in any case, he was under law, under a common justice. But certain changes began to occur in the life of the city. The New Testament era, like our own, was the urban age, the era of great cities. But the concept of citizenship was changing. The Christians were persecuted in terms of an older standard because they denied the religion of the state. They were enemies of the state, and war was waged against them. This war was logical and inevitable because two mutually contradictory religions and standards of citizenship were involved. But meanwhile, Rome was destroying its own standard of citizenship. Citizenship came to have a negative meaning. A citizen was not a Christian, or should not be a Christian, because a Christian by definition was an enemy of the state. But citizenship at first could be bought at a great price, then a cheap one, and finally it was being granted to everyone and had no meaning, dignity, or responsibility. Meanwhile, welfareism combined with the ruin of the farmers, created a welfare mob in Rome, which increasingly dominated the city and made for lawlessness. Instead of the city being a refuge from the world, it was increasingly the hellhole of the world. Instead of the emperor ruling Rome, increasingly the emperor was ruled by fear of the mob. In 274 AD, the concessions to the welfare mobs reached the point under Aurelian that bread was substituted for wheat in the welfare grants to make baking unnecessary for welfare families. With free pork, olive oil, and salt added, and more important, the right to relief was made hereditary. Welfare children no longer had to undergo the trauma of applying for relief. When they came of age, it was their birthright. The increase in taxes and in inflation virtually wiped out the middle classes. Aurelian, a brilliant general, tried to restore Rome to order. He tried to replace bad coinage with good. A new coin proclaimed him, quote, Deus et Dominus Medus, unquote, God and Lord from birth. 
But in 274 A.D., Aurelian was assassinated by the very corrupt officials he planned to expose. An able general, he had done brilliantly against the outside enemies. The enemies within, he tried to overcome, but his efforts were futile. He removed a few officials, but he created a greater welfare mob. By the time Rome fell, the city was radically sick. Emperors no longer ruled from Rome. They had moved from city to city, but cities were increasingly unsafe, and when Rome fell, the actual capital was a minor city, Ravenna. Moreover, plague, flight from the city, lawlessness, and welfareism had progressively made the city a poor place to live and had depopulated the cities. Earlier, the city had represented civilization, religion, and safety as against the countryside, which was seen as a wilderness, pagan, dangerous, and lawless. But men now fled to the wilderness for safety. The all-inclusive city had walled in anarchy and lawlessness so that men of law and religion sought shelter in the wilderness. There are, as St. Augustine said, two cities, the city of God versus the city of man. The more openly and clearly Rome became the city of man, the more clearly its inherent ruin and collapse began to govern its history. The concern of the succeeding centuries was the city, to establish the rule of the city of God. Space does not permit an analysis of its history. It was an important and central part of the Christian message. St. Patrick, for example, in the book of the Three Habitations, taught concerning the city of God that it is the goal of history. Much later, Otto, Bishop of Friesing, and the two cities grieved because the two cities had become one in the church. The various reform movements and the Reformation were aimed at separating the two cities. An important stage in the development of the city was the Enlightenment, which concerned itself with the city of man. The city of man was to be an open city, open to all men, and open to the rulers. City planning began in the 18th century, and it called for straight streets so that the state could send its cavalry charging down the streets and dominate the city. With straight streets, guns could be mounted at strategic intersections to command every approach. All men were to be citizens, because all men were to be ruled by the philosopher kings. For Jeremy Bentham, Political power was necessarily unlimited and undefined. His concept of the state, the city of man, was perhaps the best description of a total prison we have had. This open city of the humanist was supposedly an ideal concept of brotherhood. In practice, it meant the opportunity for total control of all men. It led to totalitarianism and tyranny. But another important step in the history of the city was the colonization of North America. The Puritans in particular were concerned with the city of God. They settled not as lone individuals, but as cities and towns. When they migrated westward, they migrated in companies, not as lone individuals, and they established towns every few miles. The former out in the country saw himself in relationship to his township. The town was the city of God. The countryside was the wilderness, outside of God. 
but to be brought under the sway of the city of God. Laws, including the so-called, quote, blue laws, unquote, had as their purpose the conquest of the wilderness outside of the city and inside man. The purpose of law is to bring God's order to the world within and the world without. The city had, in example, every state in the Union had originally, religious and moral test of citizenship. But humanism has gradually extended the boundaries of citizenship. Attempts are underway to restore citizenship automatically to all criminals. Citizenship is increasingly defined in the 20th century. In a physical sense, by race or by membership in humanity as such, or by birth. It no longer has reference to faith, law, and defense. The more inclusive the city becomes, the more demonic it becomes, because it denies that faith and law are governing principles, and it makes the fact of a being a man, a human being, the governing principle. Citizenship is then beyond law, beyond good and evil, and it is amoral and demonic. The city of man is beginning to rule the earth. In Marxism, it has perpetrated greater evils and more mass murders than history has ever seen, tortures and cruelties beyond all past conceptions. In the democracies, lawlessness is increasingly the rule in the cities. Signs of this were apparent early in the last century in America. New York City, under Tammany, began to propagate democracy, rule in the name of the people, and the result was tyranny, massive fraud, the enforced prostitution of helpless women, and a steady perversion of justice. See Alfred Conable and Edward Silberfarb, Tigers of Tammany. New York, Holt, Reinhardt and Winston, 1967. As the city decayed, what men had once regarded as the wilderness, the rural areas, came to be a paradise by contrast. Today, all over the world, the philosophies of the Enlightenment govern, especially in the cities, and the result is what a November 1968 newspaper article described as the, quote, exodus from the cities, unquote. The cities now lack community. Many live in distrust of providing protection for the citizens. The city is increasingly unable to protect even its police and firemen, and the death toll of the police increases annually. The city is dying, and the vultures are gathering to feast on its corpse. The city has become the ideal arena for guerrilla warfare, and again, civilization is witnessing a turning to the wilderness as a stage in the rebuilding of civilization. The purpose of the city of God is that covenant man subdue the earth and exercise dominion over it. Both town and country must be brought under the sway of God's law. Humanism cannot contain the flames of anarchy. It feeds them. It replaces God's law by man's law, an absolute order by a relative order, and it gives ultimate authority not to God, but to elite, planning, scientific man. Men are reduced from creatures created in the image of God to laboratory animals who are used in social experiments. Humanism cannot be fought on humanistic premises. The humanist believes not in an absolute God and an absolute law, but in a pragmatic relative standard. In politics, he grounds sovereignty in man 
and the state, not in God. In economics, he denies the validity of any economic law and an objective monetary standard, gold, and grounds his economics and money on, quote, character, unquote, and, quote, integrity, unquote, forgetting that man is the center. In education today, the humanist denies that the student must conform to an ultimate moral, intellectual, and scientific standard of scholarship, but progressively asserts man and his existential need as his only law. In religion, man is the new god of the humanist, and the new commandments are read out of man's biology, not from scripture. It is no wonder, then, that humanism cannot contain the flames of anarchy, since its very nature feeds the flames. The flames will devour the existing humanistic order because all the remedies of the state only pour gasoline on the flames, and the mobs in the street shout, Burn, baby, burn. That which is for burning shall be burned, and those who are destined for the fire shall go into the fire. But we who are the Lord's people look, quote, for a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God, unquote. Hebrews 11.10 In terms of this expectation, we begin now the work of Reconstruction. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had shown us by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me.
Christ has set you free, set you free. Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom. <laughs>